Well, good morning, Crestmont. Uh, my name is John Jordan, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, thanks, Christian Witterman, for that little, I'm, I'm glad he's, we got a little shout out to Crestmont Youth right there. Christian Witterman getting connected to the church and winning a gift card. That's awesome. Um, well, uh, I have the privilege uh, to be with you this morning, and, and I wanted to point out at the beginning here, it's usually Joel who gets to be up here and be a little bit mushy-gushy and tell you how much he loves you and loves this church and that sort of thing. If you know me, you know I'm not the mushy-gushy type, uh, and that gets me in trouble at home sometimes. But I want to start off this morning and just say that, um, you know, lately I've just felt so much gratitude and, and just feel blessed to be a part of this body and about what uh, a part of what God is doing here. You know, Galfua and I have been here for a little over 11 years now, and uh, so we're not originally from here, but God has given us a community of people that we couldn't imagine, you know, having somewhere else. So it, it, we feel blessed. We feel like God is doing amazing things among us. People are hungry for him. We're seeking after him. We're seeing him work in our lives, in the community, and we just couldn't imagine um, being somewhere else, and we're so happy to do this together, that we get to be in a place where God is on the move, and we get to do it with you. And so I just want to say, like, I'm full of gratitude there, and I think that's a great um, segue into our passage this morning, because we're continuing on in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 6. If you um, have your Bible, your phone, whatever, there's Bibles in the pews if you want to follow along, and some of the verses will be on the screen. But in Acts 6, if you've followed with us at all, you know that this is the start of the church. Um, this following after Jesus' death and resurrection, and now the church is here, and the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the day of Pentecost, and we're seeing the church forming, and God is on the move. God is doing amazing things. Before we get to that verse, Noah, you can take that off so we don't get distracted yet. But, but what's going on here is that we get to this passage, and this is a longer passage, so I'm going to warn you. I, I went to Joel's office this week, and I got out one of his commentaries. He has a rather extensive commentary on the book of Acts, and there were over 150 pages of commentary just on the passage that I have today. So sit down, buckle up. You know, the Steelers already played, so you can be late to lunch. There's nothing you're going to miss. Um, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to try to condense that and, uh, and do a, um, a shorter version of that today. But it is a longer passage, and it's interesting that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, gives a really long um, spot here to, the, to Stephen and his message to the religious leaders. And what I think is the deal here is this is a pivotal point in the book of Acts. So up to this point, the, uh, the Christians have only, the church has been confined to Jerusalem, and now it's starting to branch out. We saw last week, Joel talked about these Hellenistic Jews, these Jews from a Greek background who were being overlooked because the gospel is starting to spread to these wider groups of people, and the church has to form something to take care of these people. And Joel pointed out last week that, that this is sort of the link to the next piece of mission in God's church. And Stephen is one of those Hellenistic Jews himself. He's going to be the center of our story today. And we see how God is using Stephen to take the gospel to the next people group and how what's going to happen after this story 
is there's going to be persecution and there's going to be a scattering of the church abroad. And God is taking the mission global. He's taking it outside of just Jerusalem. And this message from Stephen is sort of a farewell to Judaism and the, the religion of the Jews that Christianity is now coming out of. And God is about to do some new things and bring the gospel to what, who are called the Gentiles, these people who are not Jews. And so this is a, is a pivot point in the book of Acts, and there's a longer bit here. So we're going to kind of take the passage in chunks because what happens is Stephen gets into this argument, and then he goes through like a whole history lesson um, to these people. And so we're going to kind of break it down. But what I want us to see here is I want us to ask the question all through this story, where is God in this part of the story? Where is he showing up in the history of his people? And so to set it up a little bit more, I want to say, you know, God is on the move here. Stephen is doing these miracles, signs, and wonders. There's the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The church is sharing their possessions. And what's happening is the religious folks are getting stirred up, okay? They don't like it, all right? Their traditions and things are getting messed with, and they are the ones that are going to come against Stephen here in this passage. So we're going to look at the passage we're going to ask the question, where is God here? And then we're going to talk on the back end of what that means uh, for us today. So if you could turn your attention, Noah, you can put that scripture up there. We're going to start in Acts chapter 6, verse 8 through 15. All right, let's read together. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I forgot as we started. Can we just pray for one moment? Lord, I just thank you for your word this morning. Your word that speaks to us, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you cover this place as you already have been and as we worship you? Lord, would you turn all of our eyes to you and would you truly be the center of everything um, that we do of this story because that is where you are, Lord. So would you be the center of our lives and hearts today? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I was thankful for that song this morning, Craig, by the way. We didn't talk, but... That, that, that hits home for where we're going this morning. So, um, so first of all, where do we see um, God in this interaction between Stephen and these members of the synagogue? First, God's favor is all over Stephen. He is described in this part as a man full of God's grace and power. But then earlier in the chapter, we see he's also described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So God's hand is on Stephen. He is performing signs and wonders, it says, and he's stirring up the religious folks in the passage. Um, and even as he does that, and as these things come against him, and as a conflict arises, 
we see this really interesting verse at the end there in verse 15, that they saw his face was like the face of an angel. Some passages um, translate that, that his face was actually shining like the face uh, of an angel. And we see that in Scripture in passages talking about Moses when he received the law, but also about Jesus in the transfiguration. And I can't help but notice here in the story the parallels of Stephen to Jesus, okay? So he's performing signs and wonders. There's arguments from the religious leaders. There's false witnesses brought against him. He's, they're stirring up the people against him. And there's this transfiguration of his face. His face is shining. And then we won't get to the whole story today. Spoiler alert, we're going to leave the very end of his of his um, life um, to next week, but he does, in the end, lose his life here. And even in the midst of that, he offers the people who are killing him forgiveness. So another parallel to Jesus. All of these ways that we see the parallels to Jesus, I can't help but think that the way that Stephen handles himself in peace, utter peace, boldness to speak the word of God, and, and then the offering of forgiveness all of those tell me that he is experiencing Jesus in a way that he never would aside from this conflict and persecution. So God is with Stephen in the midst of his suffering, and he gets to experience Jesus in a very unique way in this passage. So then as we look at the next verse, we're going to go through chapter 7 is Stephen's sermon, and he is about to address the people. But before that, the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? So the two charges that are brought against Stephen are that he speaks against the temple, the holy place for the people, and against the law, this, the rules and, and regulations that God had given down through Moses that the people had lived by for all these years. And in Stephen's defense, what he does is he launches into this uh, longer story of a retelling of the history of God's people. Now, what I have always kind of thought about this is it's kind of strange. Stephen is giving a history lesson to the people who, like, know all the history, okay? So I always kind of thought this was like he was just kind of like making them sit through this boring lesson that they already knew. But the way I have looked at this passage and come to think about it is that what Stephen is doing is he's showing them things that they've missed all along the way, okay? So he's going to retell the story of God's people and give them a side of the story maybe that they hadn't thought about before. I don't know if you can identify with this as a parent or working with kids ever or people that, you know, somebody comes to you with like a conflict and you hear one side of the story. All right, I get this like with my kids one of the kids runs up with a side of the story, and I know that's not the whole story, all right? I know that, you know, he didn't just hit her for no reason, you know what I mean? And so then the other one, you know, quickly comes up, and I get the other side of the story, and I think, oh, that makes a lot more sense, all right? So I think that's a little bit of what Stephen is doing here. He is giving them this history lesson, but he's pointing out some things that they had never thought about before. So, Stephen goes through four periods in the life of the people of Israel and points out their main characters. And we're going to read some of these, but for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize some of them as well. So let's look in verses 2 through 8 of Acts 7. And here he begins with the life of Abraham and the early interaction of God with his people. So it says this, To this he replied, this is Stephen, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. 
The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. I forgot to mention, every time we read these sections, we're looking at what is God doing? Where is God here in the story? God spoke to him, verse uh, 6, God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. So, Our question, where is God in this bit of Abraham's story? And first we see that he's directing his steps. So he calls him out of his own country, out of of his home where his father is from, and he calls him to a country that he will eventually show him. And then he eventually directs him to that land, but he doesn't possess that land yet. But God makes this promise with him, like, you will have this land. So God is promising, and then as a sign of that promise, he makes a covenant with him, which is this sign of circumcision, which the people of Israel followed forever and ever. And it was a sign of the promise that God had made with them. So what Stephen is pointing out, though, in all of this is that before there was a holy place, before they even made it to the promised land, that became very important for the people of Israel, that there was a holy people, okay? Before there was a holy place, there was a holy people, and God was beginning this relationship with his people, even before they had made it to the land that he promised them. All right, so then let's look, and I'm going to summarize, sorry, I'm going to summarize this next piece of the story of Joseph And what happens is the story goes to Joseph, and they wind up in the country of Egypt. If you know the story, Joseph's brothers try to kill him, and he escapes. God God takes care of him. And even though Joseph is in another country, here again, Stephen is emphasizing God is with Joseph, even though he's not in this holy land or this promised land. And God delivers the people from famine with the help of even another country of people, the Egyptians, okay? So that's verses 9 through 16. Next, Stephen jumps into the life of Moses. And this is a lengthier portion of Stephen's speech, and he separates it into 40-year sections. And it's interesting that Stephen emphasizes Moses here because the people have said Stephen is against the law and against Moses, But Stephen is actually going to take the story of Moses and put it up here to show them that actually the story that they think about Moses isn't actually that accurate, and they've missed some things along the way, and that Stephen has no problem with Moses and the law. He just has a problem with how the people have abused that. So throughout the life of Moses, if you guys know the story, anybody seen the Prince of Egypt, uh, you may know some of the background here. All right, so we're going to use that as our summary of, uh, of Moses. Without reading all of this, you know, you know that in the story of Moses, 
Moses is protected from death from the very start. Moses should have been one of those newborn babies that got thrown out because the Pharaoh said all the Hebrew babies had to be killed. But God protects him. He winds up floating down the river and ending up in the house of Pharaoh, and he is saved and raised up in the home of Pharaoh in a, in a really interesting way, setting him up to deliver the people of Israel years down the road, putting him in the very house of power in the country in Egypt in Pharaoh's house. Now, next, Stephen points out in the history of Moses that Moses is beginning to realize that he is going to deliver his people. Um, it talks about that. Um, in verse 25, it says, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. So Moses is beginning to realize, I'm supposed to be the deliverer here, and God's showing him that, but he, try to, he tries to take it into his own hands. So he kills an Egyptian, and then um, when, his, when his fellow Hebrews see him the next day and he's trying to settle the, a dispute, they know that he killed the Egyptian, and they reject him as a judge and ruler over them. In verse 27, the two, the two, uh, one of the men says, who made you ruler and judge over us? So already Moses realizes he's meant to be the deliverer, but the people are already kind of rejecting him in that role. And then finally, if you know about the life of Moses, uh, you know about the burning bush. And the burning bush is this time Moses is out uh, tending sheep in the desert, and the bush is on fire, and God speaks to him in the bush. God sends him back to deliver his people. And it's interesting, Stephen points this out, because, you know, Stephen is showing how God is showing up in the story of his people. And the burning bush is kind of a picture of what we find in the temple as the Holy of Holies, okay? So the Holy of Holies is at the center of the temple. It's the place where people go to meet with God. But Stephen is saying, look, even before there was a Holy of Holies, God met Moses in a bush. God, God doesn't need a Holy of Holies to interact with his people. He can take a bush if he wants to. And then, and then Stephen goes on to say that Moses is rejected as a deliverer. For the people, even though he brings them out of Egypt, they turn on him at times and grumble and complain, and they turn to worship their own idols even after receiving the law from the Lord. And so Stephen is saying, you guys are all about this law, but look, our people, even at the very beginning, they rejected this law and turned to their own idols. So let's pick up the story again in verse 44. And this is the, uh, the kind of the end of Stephen's history lesson to the people. I know we got a lot of info here on the front end, and uh, we're going to bring this home in just a second about what this means for us. But let's look um, at verse 44 and following. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So in the life of the history of the people of Israel, 
Stephen points out, they get to this time where God directs them to make the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is like this tent that they get to carry with them. But it's like the place where they can worship and meet with God, and it's mobile. They get to move it around with them. But eventually, God drives out their enemies. They get to the promised land, and they get to build this temple. David wants to build it, but God allows his son Solomon to build it. And for the for the Jews and the religious people that, that Stephen is here speaking to, this is it. They've made it. They made it to the promised land. They have their temple. This is how we can now meet with God. And it becomes the center of everything. And what Stephen is quick to point out here is he says in verse 48, however the most high does not live in houses made by human hands. All right? So he's saying God doesn't live in these, he's not confined to these man-made structures. Look at the story. He's been present everywhere with us all along the way. He's been in the bush. He's been speaking to Abraham. He has been in the country of Egypt delivering his people. He goes everywhere with us. We don't have to confine him to this one place Or this one structure. So as we look at kind of a review here, before we get to the very last bit of Stephen's words to the people, as we see Stephen's points, first, his first point is Israel's story is God's story. Okay? All of his history lesson has focused on God's activity among the people, and he's pointing these Israelites away from their possessions and institutions and pointing them to God himself. All right, so that's his first point. His next point is that God is not localized or confined to one place or even one people. All right, the temple had come about as an accommodation to human need. All right, we needed the temple more than God needed the temple. All right, God can speak and work anywhere. Uh, Man likes to kind of have some structure to it, and so they built the temple. But God doesn't need that. He can work anywhere. He desires pure worship, not simply a place or institution. And lastly, Stephen was pointing out that Israel often has rejected the servants of God. So, you know, Moses is an example of that. But as as we conclude the story, you'll hear more of that as Stephen now levels the charges back onto the religious leaders and He doesn't play around. He gets right to it. So in verse 51, um, Stephen's message concludes with this, and this is where we conclude today in the Scripture. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. So Stephen gets right to it uh, and and is very direct. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You persecuted every prophet. You killed the ones who came to tell you about Jesus. Then you killed Jesus. And now he says, you're the ones, he finishes with, you're the ones who received the law and still you haven't obeyed it. I don't know if anybody's seen the movie Good Will Hunting. I like one scene from that where he says, how you like them apples? I won't get into the story of, of the movie, but it, that, that's kind of like, I feel like Stephen's saying, like, how do you like them apples? Like, you guys came against me, but here's the actual, here's actually what is going on. So, so I want to ask us this question. What does all this history lesson 
What does this interaction between Stephen and the religious leaders mean for us today? So first, as we've pointed out, the whole story is God's story. He's the focus of everything that Stephen has to say. And we have the choice as believers to participate in that story or to miss out. Okay? So we can get in line. God is on the move. We can join him. Or we can miss the boat and get stuck in some things um, that cause us to miss out on Jesus. So I already mentioned earlier, I feel privileged and blessed to be a part of this with you guys because I really do feel like God is on the move among us and we're going to see him do some awesome things together and we already have. And that's the theme here today that I want us to focus on. God is on the move. And when God is on the move, what happens? So I have, like any good sermon, I have three points, all right? They don't, there's no alliteration, okay? So I'm sorry for that. But when God is on the move, he comes after our hearts, okay? So the first place he comes is after our own hearts because here in the story, the people had put God in a box. The temple, the land, the institutions, the possessions that they had, all of these things had become an idol for them, okay? So idolatry, I just want to mention this, idolatry is inevitable. It's going to happen. There's a pastor by the name of Tim Keller that some of you guys may know about. His teaching on idolatry and what that actually looks like is some of the best I've heard. Because, see, idolatry is not like carving an image and, like, bowing down to it only, okay? That is idolatry. That's how we see it in the Bible. But it is so much more than that. And, um, and so I want to read some of what Tim Keller says about idolatry. He says this, We cannot eliminate God without creating God's substitutes. Something will capture our hearts and imaginations, becoming the most important concern, value, or allegiance in our lives. So every personality, community, and thought will be based on either God himself or on some God substitute, which is an idol. You see, God put it in us to want to worship. And so our allegiances will be drawn to something. He says an idol is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity. So what are, what are some of those things uh, for us? You know, they may be um, physical objects, um, like um, our family or our bank account. It could be our schedules. They could be, I was thinking about these things yesterday. They could be these things and the things we get to do on them, smartphones and social media and all of that stuff. They, but they can also be very intangible items like success and status or our reputation or whether we feel like we've achieved some sort of American dream. It is whatever has captured our imaginations, those things that preoccupy the core of our thinking and dreaming. These are our idols, all right? And when God is on the move, he begins to reveal those things because he's coming after our hearts. He knows it's so much better for us to experience him fully than to have this divided allegiance or a divided self. He wants all of us. So when he confronts these things and comes after our hearts, we have a couple choices. We can be like the crowd and get angry or defensive and try to dismiss this stuff, or um, we can respond in humility and repentance. Um, and the, the great thing about the story of God is he's not looking for perfect people. 
Like, he doesn't want perfection. He just wants all of us, you know. He wants us to himself because he knows it's better for us. And he knows that we come with a whole mess of stuff. Like, we come with brokenness and we come with idols. We come with allegiances to other things. But he just wants us to give those to him. And he'll take care of working that out. He'll refine us. He'll cleanse us. He'll lead us to this gift of repentance where we get to turn back to him. Um, But he wants all of our mess at his disposal, not just part of it. All right? My second point is that when God is on the move, the most important question for us as people of God is where is God in the story right now? What's he doing? Where is he leading I mean by that that our most important place is in his presence, hearing his voice and discerning his calling. It's not about what we think is right or how we've always done things or our traditions. It's about paying attention to where is God? What is he up to? Where is he moving? And how do we get in line with that? And something I love about our body here, okay, I know that Every church is imperfect. We're an imperfect church. We got tons of flaws, but there are so many good, important priorities that I think God is putting into our culture here at Crestmont. We value the presence of God. We value getting before him. We value worship, prayer, listening to God. We value that as a community and as individuals. We want to hear the voice of God and follow his leading. You know, we don't hold too dearly to the things that we have or the way that we do things around here. Sure, we have a building and we have other possessions, but we realize we're just stewards of that, and God could take it away. And if he took it away, we could still be the church. We could still do ministry, and we still do ministry without this building. You know, I lead worship a lot here on Sunday morning. We can worship without all of these instruments, you know. Like, we can worship without any instruments, um, you know, last week, uh, this is a little confession. Last week, um, I was telling Heather about this this morning, that I usually pick songs based on who I know is, like, playing with us. So if we got drums, then, you know, maybe it'll be a little bit more rocking. And if, if we don't have drums, then maybe it's a little bit more chilled out, you know, something like that. Last week, we were supposed to have drums, but there was a little bit of a miscommunication. And I picked songs thinking we were going to have drums. And, I, and it's, it's, it's silly. I almost said a bad word. It's, S-T-U-P-I-D. Can't say that anymore around kids. All right. So I almost, I'm just kidding. I'm just trying. I'm being careful. All right. So so I was a little nervous. I was sweating a little extra because I was like, man, I wanted the drums on this song because it really needs to, you know, get going here. And But it didn't matter. Like, it didn't matter at all. Like, we just worship Jesus. And it was it was great. It was great. And it doesn't matter. And that's the point. All we need is Jesus. And I love that about our culture here, that that's what we value first and foremost, that we can hear his voice and follow him. So our question is, where is God in the story right now? And I want to mention that Stephen here is not giving like an anti-Jewish speech. He's not against the people, uh, not against uh, the temple, and not against the law, all right? He rejects the abuse of it. But he actually honors the temple and the law. And in the same way, we don't dishonor the way that God has worked in the past. We honor that story. 
But we also realize that God is not tied to the ways he has worked in the past. He's always doing things different and inviting his people to experience him in new ways. So this becomes an important question for our community, but also for each one of us. Because I want to say this as well. It is so good to be in a body that hears the Lord together. We get together in worship. We get together in upper room prayer, in small groups, in missional communities. And we hear the voice of the Lord together. All right, And sometimes I know I've been guilty of defaulting to just doing that in a group of people and not doing it on my own enough. Okay, So I want to mention that God wants to speak to us as a body, but he also wants to speak to us as individuals. Because God has a calling for each and every one of you in this room. And just as Joel preached last week, you may be the link to the next mission out there in the world that maybe this church would never be able to reach without you and without you hearing what God wants you to do and where he wants you to take this gospel. So we say we're a family on mission, but I also want to say we're a family of missionaries, all right? And that's a little distinction because we have a mission together, but I think God has a mission for each one individually. And I think what we want to do as a church is support that and empower that, and release all of the church for all of God's work. Steve has a saying on his wall. It says, everyone gets to play. Everyone gets to play around here, all right? So it's important for us to hear what is God saying to us, and how can we be a part of that story? And then my last point is that when God is on the move, he is with his people, and he is with his people in a special way. All right. So God's hand is all over Stephen in this story. All right. The mission is going forward, but there is conflict. It is not easy. It's not simple. Um, he faces persecution and suffering. And, and what we see is that God is with him in some sort of very special way. Noah, if you could put that last point up there. When God is on the move, he is with his people. I think that Stephen experiences some of Jesus that he would never have experienced had it all been perfect and easy. He identifies here with Jesus in his suffering. And when we do that, when we have that opportunity, though it may be really difficult, we get a piece of Jesus that we might not have gotten if it was all flowers and daisies, okay? And I want to say this, you know, When God is on the move, he's confronting the idols in our own hearts. But when we're on the move with God, we're also going to be the ones confronting the idols in in other people, okay? So it may be that when when you take the gospel to where you are, there may be some religious folks that don't like it because that's what we see in this passage. They may think this, the church has always done it this way, and we don't get that way, so it may cause a stir. Or you may be taking the gospel, and it is raising up the idols in other people, and you may, get, you may face people who are angry and defensive, and, and they may distance themselves from you, but that's all right, because in that place, we get to experience Jesus in a way that we never would have otherwise. And we get to encourage each other. Hey, this mission is worth it. Because here's what I think. It is so much better to follow Jesus through all this stuff than to miss out on what God has for us. And so I, I am excited to be a part of this story with you all. I'm excited to see what God is going to do among us. Um, 
And I, I think as we follow him, as he is on the move, what we need to do is keep checking our hearts, keep checking to see, have we given ourselves to other things? Do we have other allegiances? How can we f- fully experience all of what God has for us? Because as we say sometimes, you can have as much of God as you want, all right? So sometimes he's got to empty out some other things so that you can welcome more of him into your life. And so let's keep checking our hearts on that. It may be that we need to keep valuing his presence and, and valuing the time hearing his voice. Um, I know for me, sometimes my schedule becomes the end-all, be-all. And if I can just get through my schedule, things are all right. But I've totally missed the voice of the Lord and all of that. You know, sometimes I have just gone through my week and thought, when did I wait and listen for his voice? And I'm worried that when I do that, I miss out on what God had for me that week. Um, And then we need to encourage one another that the Lord is with us and that when we face the difficulty, when we face the conflict, we get to experience more of the Lord than we ever could uh, without that. Um, But we do it together and we get to encourage each other. So as Jenny comes and she's going to close us out this morning, I want you to pay attention and take the opportunity to maybe give more of your heart to the Lord today. Maybe it's releasing things that are taking that place. Maybe it's um, trying. Maybe it's maybe it's wanting to take more time to spend listening to the Lord. Um, but we get to do all this stuff together. We get to be on mission. We get to experience Jesus. And I hope we keep asking the question, where is he? How do we keep following him? He's not confined to one way that we've always thought of doing things. We just need to follow his call and be one step behind him as he does that. So um, I'm just going to turn it over to Jenny now and let her close us out this morning. You guys all just want to stand to close. Um, And if you're on the prayer team, if you want to come up. So yesterday I was... um, just in all honesty, having a really down day and feeling just really sad and discouraged. And it was freezing outside. And I decided I was going to get myself and my kids out for a walk. Um, And it was so hard to get out the door because it was warm inside and it was freezing outside. And as I said, I was just having a bad day. But I got out and I felt so much better in the cold air going to reveal myself as a true person from upstate New York. The cold air felt so invigorating and life-giving to me. And I stopped and I was praying while I was walking and asking God, what do you want to do tomorrow in church? And I felt like God said, getting out the door into the cold, leaving the warm and getting out the door into the cold is where life is. And I wanted, and I felt like he was saying, I want to invite people to do that today. I want to invite you to step out of the warm, cozy house and out into the cold where it's scary and your hands might go numb and your toes might go numb, but that's where life is. And I felt like God said there was three kinds of steps that baby people wanted to, he wanted people to take today. And one was maybe you're here just exploring and you're saying, my significant other dragged me, my parent dragged me whoever. I don't really know about following Jesus. I've been thinking about it. And I felt like if that's you, God wanted to tell you, it's worth it. Step out the door. That's where life really is. Go into the cold. It's not easier, but it is better. The second was if you are feeling like it is too hard to ask for healing for something, 
Um, and I just want to say, I get it. It is really hard and scary to ask for healing for things. Um, but if that's for you, I felt like God wanted to say, go, step out the door, make yourself vulnerable, and ask for healing from me. And the third type of thing I felt like God was saying was there's some people that you feel like God's asking you to do something. And it's super scary and uncomfortable. And where you are in your warm house isn't bad. But God has more for you and more life if you want to step out the door. Um, so let's just pray. And if any of those things you felt like that was you today, come up and let people pray with you and invite God's presence to help you do that. Um, and if you're just hurting in any way, physically, emotionally, spiritually, come up and let the prayer team pray with you. So Jesus, I just thank you so much that you invite us out um, into the invigorating cold air, that we don't have to stay in where there's no life where it's comfortable, but there's not as much life. Um, and I thank you that you are good and trustworthy and that when we do those things, that you, you're good, that even when it's hard, you're good. So we just ask your presence today, and I just ask that you would help us take the next step that you would like from us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.